for the scripture here because we believe that intelligent people can take the Bible seriously. It doesn't mean that we're, we just robotically, you know, accept things without any kind of critical thinking. But we believe that the scripture properly interpreted is life-giving and fantastic and can be a guide for our lives. And so that's why we stand for the scripture. And I invite you to read with us today, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. It's going to be on the screen for you. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not trouble my yourself. I mean, even consider your, myself worthy to come to you, but say the, the word and my servant will be healed. For goes and that one come, and he comes. I say to my, my, my servant, do this, he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men moved, Men who had been sent returned to the house and found his servant well. Great job, buddy. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of God's word. You may be seated. Unless you're a kid, if you're in kids grade one through six, you can go on out to well kids right back there. Follow Miss Hannah out the back, and you'll go to your class and have a great time. And here's our uh, straight out of Nazareth video. That's the only line we can play from that song. One line right there in church. So again, happy Father's Day to all dads. Welcome to Men's Day at the Well. And um, uh, we, uh, we want to celebrate you. And today we're continuing in this series straight out of Nazareth. And we're talking about um, the Gospel of Luke. It's a study in the Gospel of Luke, really. And Luke is a gospel for the marginalized. Luke communicates to, in his time and to all of us how Jesus interacted with people who were often invisible in their society, on the margins of society, people who were not in the in crowd, people who were invisible in many ways in their culture. And Luke shows us how Jesus interacts with them, and, and, and he proclaims in his hometown of Nazareth that that's his mission, to preach good news to the poor and sight to the blind and so on, as you saw in the video. And so that's this, uh, this series that we're in this week, and, and uh, we've got about two or three more weeks of it. First of all, I do want to thank, by the way, before we go on, I want to thank, um, we've had a few new people who have volunteered to serve in various ways on our ministry teams here at the church. We have road crew, graphics, sound, kids, uh, worship band, obviously, um, some uh, hospitality, greeting, and these people have served tirelessly since we launched this church back in April. Can we hear it for all of our volunteers, first of all? And um, we've had some new people who have volunteered to serve. So today we had some new people on the road crew. And just, you know, so you know what it's like. Like we're here, Graham and I are here at 7.15, 7.30. Everybody else shows up at 8. And you see these new volunteers walk up. You know like the climactic scene in every disaster movie where like the heroes are all lined up and they walk slow motion towards the camera? You know what I'm talking about? That's what it looks like to see new people show up 
to serve in these ministries like their hair is blowing in the wind and they just look epic. And that's what we think about people who volunteer for our ministry teams. So next week we have a membership class and part of that is serving, volunteering. And so if you would love to be a part of the group that makes this church happen and give some of these people a week off every once in a while and get into the rotation, we would love to have you. But just wanted to stop and thank the people who are, who are new to uh, serving here at the well. Uh, there was a viral video last week of a dad talking to his baby son. And uh, the, little, the little boy, just a baby, he, he has the conversation style of an adult. And he, even though he can't actually say any words, he's jabbering and he's conversing like an adult with his dad. Let's check that out. I was wondering. I don't know what they're going to do next season because they did some stuff this time. Exactly what I was thinking. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. Don't bring that in. You know what I'm saying? Don't do the same stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I was like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, go somewhere else with that, but don't break here. You know what I'm saying? That's what I said. Then it was like, ah, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, what in the world? But don't do it here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Sweet. Now, the dad, isn't the kid a little mini-me, by the way? I mean, the dad obviously plays off of the, the boy's conversation and his mannerisms, but where does that little boy get all that? His dad. He's just mimicking what he sees his dad say and how he says it. And for us who are dads or grandpas or uncles or you're a father figure in some way, I mean, they're watching us, aren't they? And they, it's scary. I mean, they just mimic everything that we do. And being Father's Day and Men's Day, it makes me think of my grandpa. If you know my story, I lived with my grandparents and my mom until I was six, and my grandpa was my father figure for me. And he's long gone now. Uh, he passed away in 1994. But when I was little, he was, he was my father figure. And um, I remember he was a bit of a religious outsider. He was a marginal church attender. He would go occasionally. He was kind of a CEO, Christmas and Easter only. And maybe Mother's Day and throw a couple, maybe Father's Day, throw a couple other holidays in there. And he would go. And when he went, he always wore a tie. That was important to him. He was a World War II vet, part of that greatest generation. He didn't talk about it a whole lot like a lot of those guys. And, uh, but he, he would go to church occasionally. But one of the things I remember about him is that every morning he read at least two things. He read newspapers and he read from his Bible. And maybe that was a generational thing to some degree. But he was a man who was informed about the world. He watched the news every night. He read. He had some news magazines laying around as well. And he read the news and he read his Bible. And at the same time, he was kind of a religious outsider. As I got a little older, I realized he had a healthy skepticism. You got to watch out for those preachers. You know, he, and he kind of he knew religion can go bad in the world. And, and so he kept a little bit of a distance. He was a thinking guy. And, and maybe I got a little bit of that from him. I don't know. But there is some amount of healthy skepticism that is necessary in life to not just be duped by con men all the time. Some ability to ask questions, to test claims, to see if they're valid. It's critical thinking. You know, just the ability to think outside the box and, and not just accept everything you hear uh, with, with no filter. And today we're talking about, in the Straight Out of Nazareth series, good news for religious outsiders, people who, like my grandpa, would be kind of like, eh, you know, I'll go sometimes, um, but you know, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that. And, by the way, unless, unless uh, it's any secret, I don't think it is, there are a lot of people who go to church a lot, maybe every Sunday, and they serve and they volunteer, and they still kind of feel a little bit like religious outsiders. Does anybody want to say amen to that? I thought there might be a few of you here this morning. 
So there are religious outsiders, and there's a spectrum. Some of them are in church every Sunday, but they're still thinking people. They have a healthy skepticism, and they value some things about faith and spirituality, and at the same time, they're people who are thinking people, and they ask questions. We're talking about all those folks today. And if you struggle with faith, if you feel like maybe you don't have enough of it, or, or maybe you envy people who do, or maybe you're okay with not having a lot, I don't know. But if you feel like you don't have a whole lot of faith, or you struggle with faith, then this is for you. All right? Today we're talking about good news for the religious outsiders. Over and over again in the Gospels and definitely in Luke, Jesus confronts very religious people. And there's something that we can glean very quickly. You could read the Gospel of Luke in like a half an hour. You could read, it's, it's not a long book. You could read it today if you wanted to. And, and you would see one of the overarching stories is that Jesus' primary challenge to religion, what he says to super religious people, the Bible thumpers, the holier-than-thou people, his challenge to them is that maybe, just maybe, the insiders, the people who think they are religious insiders, might actually be out. And the people who are outsiders or, or through outsiders, whatever that might mean, I'm not exactly sure what that means, that's my fault, the outsiders might actually be in. There's this reversal, this twist ending in the Gospels. And it's, Jesus, it's really his primary message to religious people. That all of the people who are so confident and self-assured that they're in, they might actually be out. And the people who maybe are dejected and discouraged because they, they wish they were in, but they think they're out, they might actually be in. That's Jesus for you. I think if you were, if you were to summarize the ministry of Jesus, and I mean, in a nutshell, that wouldn't be too far off, correct the typo, and it might, be not, might not be too far off. The insiders might be out and the outsiders might be in. So he accused the Pharisees, the super-religious people of his day, of being concerned with their own purity instead of being compassionate to other people. They were separatists. And so we want to build a wall between us and other people. And he said, wait a second, what you're actually doing is in thinking that you're so pure, you're building a wall between people and God. You're making it harder for people to find God because they think that God is like you. And they're repulsed by that. And so you, you, you think that you're in, but you, you might actually be out. And in Matthew, he says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, and calls on my name, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, will be uh, entered into the kingdom of heaven. But he or she who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That it's not just about talk, talking a good religious game or a spiritual game, but it's people who actually follow what God wants in this world. Those are the people who are in. And so you've got people in churches who are out. And you've got people who would never set foot in a church who might just be in. And that's Jesus for you. And it blows apart our categories. Like the song we sang earlier, God bless the Christian, the Muslim, the atheist. There's so much we don't know. And that faith requires some kind of an open hand. So the first sermon I ever gave was in November of 1993. And uh, um, got involved in ministry at that point. Uh, served as an associate pastor most of those years. And then became a, a lead pastor in, in March of 2012. That's 25 years now. And... Uh, that's, that's quite a while now. It feels, like, it feels like a long time, 25 years. And as I look back over that amount of time, I've seen a tremendous amount of change in the church world and in the religious and spiritual world in America. Before I was born, a few years before I was born, some televangelists decided they wanted to have a bigger influence on politics in the United States. And one of those leaders was a man named Jerry Falwell, and he formed a group of people he called the Moral Majority at the time. And they, they uh, got super into politics. And for them, there was this fusion of religion and politics and the way they interpreted the Bible and the way people should vote. And they did a very, uh, they did an excellent job, a very effective job of spreading that message to American culture. They decided good Christian people need to take their country back. And church attendance has been declining ever since. That's what's happened. That's the story of the spirituality of America in my lifetime and, and really yours too, most of it. 
And these people decided, we, wanna, we want to use politics as a vehicle to promote our religious views. And church attendance is crashing. There's just something about that, that approach that hasn't been so appealing to a lot of people in our country. And so back in 2011, Christianity Today ran an article that I've quoted several times over the past few years called The Leavers. And they reported that the percentage of 20-somethings at that time who were like millennials, you know, millennials get sick of being talked about in studies, I'm sure. But they talked about the, the number or the percentage of millennials who claim no faith. And it doubled between 1990 and 2008 from 11% to 22%. So in 2011, 22% of millennials said they don't have any faith. Now, they asked further and they found that 73% of those people who claim no faith grew up in church. And they left. And then, just uh, a couple of years ago, in 2016, Pew Research found that it's now more like 35%. So it doubled from 11% in 1990 to 22% in 2008, was it? And now in 2016, 35 to 40% of millennials say they have no faith, no religion. And when you ask them why, it's not a mystery, it's not a secret. One of the primary answers they give is that this version of Christianity that I see that is in bed with partisan politics is repulsive to me. I don't want anything to do with that. It's, it's leading our country backwards. I, that's, that's the opposite of the kind of person that I want to be. And so it looks like America, young America is losing its religion. As some Christians wanted to have a greater influence in politics, church attendance has declined. You may think that all Christians are like that, or that it's always been this way, the way that it is now, that it's always been like that. It's not true. It's actually not true. By far, the most famous evangelical leader of the 20th century was Billy Graham. He, he practically created what is now evangelicalism by himself. And in the 1970s, he got too close to politics with Richard Nixon and Watergate, and he got burned and he learned his lesson. He started to mellow throughout his life. Now, he was a conservative Southern Baptist man. So compared to some here, he, you know, he wasn't exactly a progressive. At the same time, he was a man on a journey. And there was some changing, some opening of his mind over time. I'm going to read you a quote from February 1st, 1981. This is from the cover story of Parade Magazine in 1981. Billy Graham was asked about conversations he had had with Jerry Falwell, who started The Moral Majority. And this is what Billy Graham said. I told Jerry Falwell to preach the gospel. That's our calling. I want to preserve the purity of the gospel and the freedom of religion in America. I don't want to see religious bigotry in any form. Liberals organized in the 60s and conservatives certainly have a right to organize in the 80s. But it would disturb me. Track along with this. It would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. I, I felt like that deserved two of those. He continues, it would be unfortunate if people got the impression all evangelists belong to that group. The majority do not. I don't wish to be, to be identified with them. I'm for morality, but morality goes beyond sex to human freedom and social justice. We as clergy know very little to speak out with such authority on, and these were issues at the time, the Panama Canal or superiority of armaments. Evangelists can't be closely identified with any particular party or person. We have to stand in the middle to preach to all people right and left. I haven't been faithful to my own advice in the past. I will be in the future. If you're familiar with Billy Graham, you may now pick your jaw up off the floor. Can you believe that? That was in 1981, and that was a guy on a journey who started this, but a guy who went on a journey. Now, and I'll just say this quickly and move on, there is a clear effort, he's gone now, in his organization run by his son to actually change the perception about him later in life, to cover up this mellowing and this kind of opening that he went through in his 70s and his 80s. Um, you can see that um, in his son, if you're familiar with his son. 
It's just fascinating to me. It hasn't always been this way. And so I want to talk about what faith is and what it isn't because there's this idea that many of us have is, is that faith requires you to either, yes, be in bed with, with partisan politics or that it requires you to not be a thinking, open-minded person who changes your mind and is on a journey. Does that make sense? That faith requires you to be static and there's a list and I ascribe to that list and it never changes. I'm not allowed to grow. I'm not allowed to morph. I'm not allowed to think in any way. I'm not allowed to deepen. I'm not allowed to have my mind broadened by experiences or travel like I'm sure you know, happened for Billy Graham. Faith is, is something that, that is static and requires just acceptance of whatever, whatever is said, regardless of, of experience or evidence. And, and, and so another question that these, these young, these millennials were asked, why did you leave, was nobody would engage me in my questions and doubts. I had this idea of faith that I can't think anymore. And, and they're telling me one thing, and, my, and, and just what is clearly seen in the world is, is telling me another and I just, I just can't go with that. So the idea was they had been taught that Christianity demands blind faith. You know what blind faith is? Blind faith is believing in spite of the evidence. And there are some of us who have been taught that blind faith is a good thing. That, yeah, God just wants you to believe and not use your brain. That faith requires that you just shut the brain off and, and just believe whatever the, the, the pastor tells you or the preacher tells you. That is the bread and butter of cult leaders and televangelists and politicians who want to tell you that left is right and right is left. and, and, and or, You know what I'm saying. I screwed that up, but we'll just move on. Thank God for editing in the sermon later on. And they, just want, you to, they want you to doubt your own perception Doubt your own reasoning, and, this, and they can control you. It's the bread and butter of people who want to control you. What we're going to see in this scripture that, that, that Graham and I read today is the Bible does not teach blind faith. If you're a note taker, feel free to write that one down. Feel free to snap a picture of that screen. The Bible does not teach blind faith. In Chandler, Arizona, on June 16, 2019, there was a church that put this up on a screen. The Bible does not teach blind faith. There are many, many, many people who have been raised to believe that blind faith is what God wants. It's not the case. Not the case at all. Because the NBA finals just ended, we'll use a basketball. And some of you have seen me do this before. But I want to talk about what faith is and what it looks like to know things what it looks like to be certain of things. And so we have a basketball here. I'm going to see if I can do this one-handed. It appears to me that every time I toss this basketball up into the air, it falls back towards the earth. Are you with me on that? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Now, if I were to throw this basketball up in the air a million more times... How many of you would say with 100% certainty that every single time I throw this basketball up in the air, it's going to fall back down towards the earth? How many of you would raise your hand and say that with 100% certainty? About 45% of you believe in gravity. So that's good. That's a start. Uh, so yeah, I think no strings attached, no smoke and mirrors. If I did this a million times, I'm willing to go out on a limb here. I'll go ahead and say, yeah. Gravity is going to pull this basketball back towards the earth every single time. Some of you are such thinking people, you're like, well, what if the universe would end and the sun would become too close to the earth and would implode and become a supernova and then gravity wouldn't function the same way? That's why you're in this church is because you think like that. So barring all of that, I'm pretty sure, I'm 100% certain, actually, that this ball will keep returning to the earth. Why am I so sure? This is a science experiment, isn't it? This is observable. I can see the ball. I can feel it in my hand. I can hear it. I don't know if you can, but I can hear the ball hit my hand. With my five senses, I can observe this. It's repeatable. So I don't know how many times I've thrown it up there now, but it just keeps working. It's observable. It's repeatable. It's a science experiment, isn't it? 
How many of you would say with that same kind of certainty, that same kind of 100% certainty, that you have heaven and hell all figured out? Any takers? How about even the virgin birth? 100% certainty. Hey, I, I will say by faith, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I understand that's a miracle. That's not something that, I, I haven't seen the videos. It's not something that's observable or repeatable to me, but I'll say that by faith, but it's a different kind of faith, isn't it, than I have in gravity. Would you agree with that? Different kind of faith? Let's try this. And by the way, when we talk about miracles like the virgin birth, in the Bible, the meaning is, or the, the miracle is never the point. The meaning is the point. That's, that's, a big, that's a big deal for thinking people. Now, what about this? What if I said by a show of hands, how many of you are 100% certain that your faith has changed your life for the better? Would you raise your hand? Has your faith changed your life for the better? That's a lot of you. How many of you would say with 100% certainty that human beings need love? That's a lot of you. How many of you would say that it's a good thing to love your neighbor as yourself? With 100% certainty, oh man. There's a lot of certainty out there right now. Why? You, you didn't have that same kind of certainty about metaphysical things, but you did have that same kind of certainty about things that maybe you've experienced, things that you can test. And no, you, you know, loving your neighbor is different than throwing a basketball up in the air, but you can see the results of it, right? There are some people who believe that you should have showed the same kind of certainty over heaven and hell as you do over people need love, or as you do over gravity. And if you don't have that same kind of 100% certainty about heaven and hell, then you don't have enough faith. You're bad. There's something wrong with your faith. You have to have all those metaphysical things figured out and, and know them with 100% certainty. Now, of course, what's the weakness of that? If somebody's like, prove it. Okay, like, then you're done. So there, there's, there's no evidence that can be showed about heaven or hell. I've never been there. I doubt you have. And so perhaps faith is not pretending to have 100% certainty about things that we don't know anything about, that we're speculating about. Perhaps faith is something different from that. There's a, a speaker and an author named Peter Rollins who said, we do not speak of God like we speak of physics. It's a different kind of knowing, a different kind of believing, a different kind of faith. And while some believe that real faith is showing 100% certainty about metaphysical things that we don't have any way to be certain about. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus is going for in Scripture. It doesn't seem to be what Scripture in general is going for. And I, and I understand there are verses that make it seem like, you know, it might be. So people say, well, Abraham. Abraham left his home country. He followed God, and he went to a place where he didn't know where he was going. And, and that's true. He did. He followed, that was the faith he showed. He wasn't denying his brain or evidence. He was, he was taking steps on the ground, like because he knows that works. And he loaded up a donkey probably, or lots of them, with his possessions, because that's what you do when you move. And he followed actually the only route he could take, which is called the Fertile Crescent. It's the only, it's the only migration pattern from his homeland of Babylon to what is now Israel, that you can take without dying in the desert. So it was actually a well-worn path. And he knew that he had to stay in the, in the Fertile Crescent. He used his brain to do that. If, if, you know, God didn't lead him out in the desert. He led him around the Fertile Crescent where people could live. There's a verse in Proverbs, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him or acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And so people are like, well, there it is. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't use your brain. Don't think about things. And so when the, when the, the leader says, nope, science is bunk. Everybody, every scientist in the world, they're, they're in a conspiracy and they're trying to trick you. It, well, I don't know that that's exactly what Proverbs is talking about because Proverbs is about wisdom. Proverbs is a book about living with wisdom. And when he says lean not on your own understanding, well, see, I know how to rationalize my own behavior sometimes. That's harmful. I know how to have an argument with my wife and think that I won or that I'm right and then later find out that maybe I'm not all the time. And that's wisdom. 
being able to not just lean on your own understanding and say, wait a second, maybe there's another way of thinking about this. Maybe there's another view. That's what wisdom is, trust in the Lord. And that's what Proverbs is all about. Wisdom is the opposite of blind faith, by the way. Wisdom is, is thinking in new ways and being open to reconsider new views using your brain, not just accepting whatever you tell yourself or whatever somebody else tells you. Wisdom is the opposite of blind faith. One more before we move on, and we'll talk about this a little more in a couple of weeks. When Jesus raises from the dead, he appears to the disciples, but Thomas isn't there and he doesn't believe. So he's, what's his name, Thomas? Doubting Thomas. And, he, and Jesus appears to him. And Jesus shows him the scars in his hands and feet. And, and he says to Thomas, blessed are, are people who have seen and believe, but blessed are the people who have not seen and still believe. So Thomas, you saw me and you believe. Blessed are the people who have not seen and they, and they believe. And if you're talking to somebody who wants to twist that verse to control you, then they'll say, oh, doubt your eyes. Whatever your eyes and ears tell you, nope, 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 you're wrong. Lean not on your own understanding there. You just believe whatever I tell you. That's not what that verse means. It's a verse specifically about the resurrected Jesus. That's its context. The resurrection, again, is presented as a miracle. You either believe it or you don't. And what's important there is the meaning of it, like every other miracle. But what he says to Thomas is, blessed are people who have not seen scars in my hands and my feet, and yet they still believe that I rose. Do you see the difference between that and never use your brain for anything, don't believe your eyes, just do what I tell you? Do you see the difference between those two things? It's a clear difference. But it shows how a Bible verse can be manipulated by people who want to control and use it for ill and maybe get votes from you. The Bible doesn't teach blind faith. What it does teach is that faith is personal trust in Jesus enough to follow him. That's what faith means. It means trusting Jesus, the person of Jesus, enough to follow him. Not an abstract list of things about him, but it means trusting him. If Hannah said to me, and we have had conversations like this, didn't quite play out exactly like this, and you'll see what I mean, but where she said to me, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, and I just, you know, do you think I can do it? You know, I need you to believe in me. I need you to support me. So imagine if my wife said to me, yeah, I'm thinking about changing jobs. I need you to believe in me here. Just believe in me that I, that I can do this. And I started repeating things about my wife. If I said, well, you know, you're five foot four, and you have brown hair and hazel eyes, and, and you're the mother of our two boys, and, and she would, you know, she would call a therapist probably immediately, and she would say, I'm not asking you to believe things about me, to, to make claims about me and believe those claims about me, I'm asking you to believe in me. To believe in me enough to support me that I can do this. Believing in her, that's faith. That's what faith means in the Bible. Cover to cover. Faith means trust. It means trust in God, trust in Jesus, enough to follow. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, just gonna, I'm not gonna rationalize my behavior and just lean on my own understanding here, but I'm gonna trust you. I want to acknowledge you and, and, and follow your guidance. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you speak to me and make me better over time and, and partner with you to do good things in the world. That's what faith means in the Bible. And we see that in the life of the centurion. And quickly in Luke chapter 7, this centurion uh, has a servant. Who Another word for that is a slave, by the way. So this is a man who has a slave. And the slave is near death. And he sends... For Jesus to heal his slave because he's heard that Jesus is a healer. A centurion was a religious outsider for sure. This guy was way outside. He was a Roman soldier and the Romans had occupied the land that Jesus lived in. They came and took them over. So the centurion leads a hundred soldiers in the Roman army. And he sends for Jesus. And, and the people he sends, apparently this guy is sympathetic, though, to Judaism because he has donated money to the synagogue and he, he likes the Jewish people. He, that might make him what was called a God-fearer in the ancient world, Gentiles that hung around synagogues. Gentiles that had an interest in Judaism were called God-fearers. And maybe the centurion was a God-fearer. But he still, wasn't, he still wasn't a Jew. And he was a Roman who was not really welcome in this land. This guy was definitely an outsider. And he sends for Jesus to heal his, his servant. But 
uh, on the way, as Jesus says, okay, and he walks towards this guy's place, he sends some friends. And he sends this message to Jesus from his friends. He said, I'm not worried that I have you in my home. But here's what I know. I'm in the kind of position of authority where I can say to somebody, go do this, and they do it. And I believe that you could just speak the word from a distance and heal my servant. You don't even have to come. If I have that kind of authority over the soldiers that I command, I believe that you have that kind of authority to heal. Again, this is in the ancient world. We say you can express your faith and your doubts here, and you may have questions and doubts about miracles and healing and all that, and that's fine. We're stepping into ancient literature, and we're reading it for what it means. And Jesus hears his friends report this message, and, and Jesus is amazed at this guy's faith. Jesus said, wow, I, I haven't seen, I have not found such great faith. Jesus says, about this man who is a religious outsider. Like the guy, the guy, the occupier who is not welcome here. Everybody hates this guy. He's an outsider. Jesus says, I have not found such great faith. What is it about his faith that was so impressive to Jesus? And I, I mean, just think about it for a moment and you can see it. What did the centurion do? He started with his own experience of life. And he owned his spiritual life and his beliefs, didn't he? That, Jesus wasn't healing from a distance. And in the rest of Luke, he placed his hands on people. Or, and so the man apparently had not heard that, that Jesus you know, could heal from a distance. Nobody knew that. But he owns his own spiritual life, and he thinks deeply about it. You know, if I can, if I can do that in my life, maybe Jesus can do that. And once again, it's an ancient story about divine healing. But catch what's happening here. This man is owning his own spiritual life. He's not just believing what somebody else tells him. He's not being duped. He's not just, he's not certainly not practicing blind faith. He's owning his own faith and his own spiritual life and he's thinking about it. And he's like, if, I, if that's true of my life and my experience, maybe that's true of God. And he tests that he's internalized faith in his own spiritual journey. And some of you may, may feel like that. Maybe you feel like a religious outsider, but these things are important enough to you or you wouldn't be here or you wouldn't be listening to the podcast. And maybe, just maybe, your honest faith, not blind faith, but your honest faith and your working out of your own spirituality and your working out of your own faith and your owning of your own spiritual life, maybe that is actually the kind of faith that is amazing to Jesus. Maybe you think you're an outsider and Jesus would look at your spiritual life and be like, that's what I'm talking about. What, what kind of a twist ending would that be? Well, that's what we see in the Gospel of Luke. Maybe, it's, maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe it's hard for you to be here this morning. Maybe it's hard for you to listen. It might just be that like the centurion, Jesus would be amazed at your faith. I have an uncle uh, who I've talked about before who um, professes to be an atheist. And, uh, and he's been a good part of our family, and he's a good guy. And I'm kind of ratting him out, but he, he gives to this church. There, there are people, I, I know for a fact, there are people who are atheists and people who are agnostics who give money to this church. And not that that's like the, you know, the, the great you know, decider of whether a person is righteous or not. You're never going to get a pastor on your bad side by giving to the church, by the way. I can guarantee you that. But not that that's some like test of righteousness. But hey, there are a lot of Christian people who don't give. And there are, I know for a fact, people who are atheists and agnostics who give to this church. You don't have to be a religious person to be a moral person. It might just be that there are some Christians in church who aren't that great of people. And maybe their faith is not all that impressive to Jesus. And there are people who wouldn't darken the doors and it's precisely because of their understanding of religion that they reject it. And that they're actually making the moral choice based on the light that they have and the evidence they have. Obviously, I would say, well, maybe there's more. And I would press that person, well, search more, seek more. Don't stop asking questions. Keep asking questions. But it, there may be people who are atheists, agnostic, and Jesus would be like, man, I'm amazed at their faith. They're good people. 
like the centurion. They're owning their own spiritual life. One way to test this, if you're a, you know, today, if you're a dad or if you're a grandpa or, or if you, you know, obviously parent or, or if you just have some kind of influence on anybody's life, your friends, your family, here's a, way to, here's a way to ask a question about your faith. Does your faith inspire? Does your faith inspire? Does your faith inspire people to do good things? To see the beauty in the world, to have hope and about how things could be better? Does your faith inspire or does your faith cause them to close down? If your faith inspires, that seems to be the kind of faith that amazes Jesus. When Jesus sees great faith in the New Testament, it seems to be the kind of faith that wants to make the world better. And the faith that moves things towards the direction of compassion and goodness and justice and righteousness, and, which means doing what's right by everybody. That seems to be the kind of faith that Jesus is impressed with. People who own their own spirituality, and they don't just accept it uncritically, but they ask questions, but then there are people who, whatever faith they have, it pushes them towards goodness. Whatever faith you have, does it inspire? One small example of partnering with God and faith and trusting in him enough to follow him is this food drive we're doing in a couple of weeks. Uh, There's a, a, a nonprofit in Chandler called Matthew's Crossing. It's a food bank, and... They uh, have been growing for years now, and in the summertime, the shelves get a little bare because people want to give around Christmas. And on June 30th, we're going to put a a bin back there from Matthew's Crossing, and we just want to fill it on June 30th. If you bring food items with you, if you go to wellaz.org, you can see a list of their needed items. Just go to the wellaz.org and scroll down, and you can bring some items. I want to show you a quick video from Matthew's Crossing. Because I'm sure there are people in Matthew's Crossing, um, although it was founded by churches, it's independent now who are not necessarily religious people. Maybe they'd be religious outsiders. But whatever faith they have or values or beliefs about life, it compels them to do um, this kind of work and make the world better. just want to check out this quick one-minute video. Back here in 2001, there was a real need in the community in terms of the food insecurity of so many thousands of our our neighbors here, our brothers and sisters. And so they began uh, an initiative to uh, start a food bank right here. It started in our kitchen with apparently just a couple of cans of beans and uh, whoever showed up that day. I think the first year it was an operation, only about 800 people were able to eat. uh, And now feeds tens of thousands, uh, 80,000 or so in our community around us. So it's amazing to see something grow from just that small initiative, a few people who cared very deeply about living out their faith, about making that difference in the world around them, and has blossomed into this incredible organization that touches people uh, all throughout the community and helps to end that cycle of poverty and of food insecurity. They serve almost 80,000 people in Chandler, which would be news to some people that there's that much need here. One in four American children is born into poverty, into the, into the land of opportunity. One in four children, I'll repeat, is born into poverty. And so you may be a religious outsider, but maybe you have the kind of faith that would be amazing to Jesus because you see that and you're like, man, I want to do something about that. I want to I bring goodness and justice and righteousness in that world, into the world, the kind of things we talk about in the Lord's Prayer. June 30th, is a great opportunity to do that. Next week, we're having a membership class. It's our first one. We're calling it VIP Lunch. And um, it's a way to it's come to the one-hour lunch in class. You hear about what we're trying to do at the well, and you can decide if, you're, if you haven't really plugged in, you can plug in and you can be a part of the team that makes the well a reality. You may feel like a religious outsider, but you might say, well, I know enough about the mission and vision of this church that I want, I want to be a part of it. And, and maybe you don't have all the metaphysical things figured out, and maybe you never will, maybe you never should, but the faith that you have compels you, that you want to be a part of what we're doing. Our mission and vision is on the next slide. Our mission here is to create a community where thinking, compassionate people can find a spiritual home and cultivate a Jesus-inspired life. And let's just be honest, how many churches in the United States do you think want to reach thinking, compassionate people? I don't know, but that's what we want to do. And it seems like there needs to be more of that. How do we do that? What does that look like? We say the wall is a place where you're free to express both your faith and your doubts. 
How many churches in the United States do you think value that? It's not that we want to make people doubt or cause people to doubt. We're acknowledging that people do. That people have questions about things that are metaphysical that they can't be certain about. And we believe that often those things are a barrier to good people who do want to get involved in a community like this, but they feel like, man, I just can't get past the, the stuff. They, they want me to be certain about things that no human being can. And Well, we, we want people to express their faith and their doubts so they can grow, to become their best self. Father, mother, single person, what, whoever, it doesn't matter. Become the best version of ourselves, and we can partner with God to make a difference with our lives. That's the kind of community that we want to create here. This is what we believe it looks like to follow Jesus and be a person of faith. Not 100% certainty about metaphysical things. We hold those things with an open hand, humbly. But this is, this is what we believe uh, it looks like to be a person of faith. You can RSVP to my email address. It was on that VIP slide if you want to come next week. It's a lunch at, right after the service. These chairs become tables because this is an elementary school cafeteria, of course. So these chairs become tables. We'll have lunch and uh, kids are welcome. No childcare, but they can have lunch with us. And we'll talk about what it means to be a part of this church. If you want to be a part of a community like this. So the gift that all men and boys are receiving today, and I'm sure we'll have a lot left over, by the way. And you can take one if you don't fit into that category. But um, it's a, this verse from Luke chapter 7, verse 9, where Jesus says, I have not found such great faith. You might be a religious outsider. It might just be. That your faith, though, would be amazing to Jesus. If you're the kind of person that wants to own your own spirituality and figure things out and start with where you are, and what do I really believe about life? And then you're the kind of person who says, whatever faith means, it means I want to do good things in the world. I want to leave this world better than I found it. Well, I think Jesus would be amazed by your faith. And, and so am I. And, and I would love for you to be a part of a community like this. All right. If you feel like a religious outsider, perhaps Jesus is amazed by your faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for this amazing scripture about someone who did not fit in the religious culture of his day and his area, but who reached out who sought Jesus out, who searched. And he owned his own spirituality enough to think deeply about it beyond just what other people were telling him, but to think for himself and work out what he believes. And when he expressed that, when his friends expressed that to Jesus, Jesus was amazed by his faith. If anything is true, we know that in our country right now, there are a lot of people who talk about Jesus and because of the way they do it and the way they work it out and the, and the political power plays, it's repulsive to millions of people. And church attendance has been declining ever since. And some of us feel like religious outsiders because of what they've been doing. And we're not a part of that, so apparently I don't fit in. Well, it might just be that maybe you're not about the political power plays, but that you're about loving people. You're about including people like the outsider, like the centurion. You're about healing somebody like a slave, the slave of the centurion, somebody who had very little rights in the, in the Roman world and you cared about him. In the same way you care about those of us around here who are hungry, people who are invisible in Chandler, people who are well hidden in the Southeast Valley. But as, as Luke tells us how you proclaim good news to those who are invisible, we wanna join you in that. A food drive is just the simplest way. It's the lowest bar to jump over. And so God, we, we wanna go to the website and look at the list and bring items in on June 30th and make sure that places like Matthew's Crossing have enough food to give out in the summertime. For those of us who care deeply about creating a community like this, then the VIP lunch is for us. 
we're important people because a lot of us are hidden. We're hidden in, in U.S. culture, people who have left church or people who have been so turned off, they don't really, they don't know where to go for community. They're spiritually homeless. And we feel like we're alone sometimes. But we're not. The truth is we're not. We're just in hiding. We're invisible. But it's communities like this that allow us to join together and present a different view of Jesus Christ to the United States. One that we believe is true to the gospels. And that's what we wanna do in this church. So God, for those of us who feel called to be a part of the, the team that makes this church happen, God, thank you and work through us, live through us, heal through us, give hope to the religious outsiders through us, feed people, literally feed them physically through us. And as the years go by and we dream with you about what it looks like, maybe we're involved in education and all kinds of ways and, and coming alongside schools and teachers and, and, the, and folks who struggle in poverty, we, all kinds of amazing, beautiful things could come out of this community. Because we realize that you love the outsider and that includes us and, and we wanna join you in that. In this final song, God, we proclaim our love for you or at least our interest in you for some of us. That, yeah, maybe I'm an outsider, but I wanna seek, I wanna search like the centurion. And God, as we sing together, may your spirit be among us in such a way that people have, who have felt excluded realize they're included that the outsider may not actually be an outsider at all. It might actually be their faith that is amazing to Jesus. And we pray these things in your name, amen.